Walsh, thank you so much for, um, first of all, for submitting a story for us to publish in the anthology So World's Turning and also for um, agreeing to let us come and record you reading a little bit and having a chat about one of your stories. Um, would you like to read for us? Yes, sure. Yes, the story I'm going to read, probably about the first half of the story, which is a fairly short, short story. It's called Fine. I have a friend who always offers me a choice. I arrive at her apartment and she offers me tea, which I accept. Then she says, if I prefer, I could have coffee, and I no longer know whether I prefer tea, which had seemed such a fine choice. When I ask my friend what she would prefer, she professes no preference and tells me she will have what I would prefer. I am no longer able to prefer either tea or coffee. Then she offers me wine. I sit having tea on her sofa, the tea that seems no longer satisfactory because it is not wine or coffee, when she asks me how my son is doing. I do not like to lie, so I say, not well. She draws in breath. To say someone is not well is something she does not want to hear, although she has no sick friends or relatives. The answer she expects is fine, which is not an answer I want to give. Not well is not an answer she likes, though it is likely that she knows this is an answer she might expect from me. My answer must be brought round from not well to fine, by way of further choices, which she suffers the burden of providing. In order to make him fine, she must first find what makes him sick. Could my son be suffering from this, she asks, or that? He has been checked, I say, by the doctor. But do I think, she asks, that he might be suffering from a third or fourth condition? He has been checked, I say, at the hospital. But what about this or the other? I'm sure, I say, that if the doctor or the hospital thought these possibilities worth considering, they would have checked them too. Perhaps they did. She must know that to offer me these choices is not a matter for laypersons, and this is why I do not listen to my friend. Not listening makes me draw back from my friend physically into her sofa, and she must see this drawing back. I do not know at first that what I have sitting here on my friend's sofa is a headache. Because I am not prone to headaches, a headache is a thing other people have. Therefore, this bad feeling cannot be a headache. I do not know why I don't like my friend's suggestions. I know she must mean well because she is my friend, or at least I can't not think she means well or she would no longer be my friend. Perhaps I should listen to my friend. Perhaps though she may desire only the luxury of having been right and this possibility disgusts me, she may be right. Perhaps I will sacrifice my son to disgust. It is always a possibility. Thank you. Um, in this story, and in you, so you, you've written seven books. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, one of them is a digital kind of work online called mm. Seed, um, which you can just Google and find for free. I think it's seed-story.com. But yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of in a lot of your work, um, you you work with the I, the mm -hmm. first person pronoun, and it's never quite clear whether how much of it is constructed and how much of it is taken from reality, and um, it's a very playful construction. Mm -hmm. um, it it appears in a lot of your yeah. books, and sometimes um, I work with things like we as well or you. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of interested in shifting pronouns and and just the ways we we construct ourselves mm. um as groups and as individuals and relationally and also against each other and mm. so the, the kind of lines that you draw with words around that, that that's something i'm thinking about all the time and it's really interesting with, with um when when sometimes um novels bring bring non-fiction mm. into 
into the form. Yeah. Um, then, and, and those distinctions between fiction and non-fiction are blurred. It, it really forces us to question the fiction, mm-hmm. fictional aspect of the things that we accept as truth, like the eye that we present to everyone. That's something that really comes across in a lot of your work with the, the performance aspect of yeah. the eye. I like what happens to the reader when you say, when you, when you present something as not entirely untrue. I, I think there's, there's a rather like the lines between I and we and you, there's a kind of sliding scale where people do often think that um, works to present it as fiction, short stories and novels, are probably true about the writer or someone they know. know. But when you, when you come out there and you say, actually, you know, this is a story, but I've constructed it about events in my own life, then I'm, I'm kind of quite interested in what happens to the reader then. And I'm always interested in writing as something that's also constructed by the reader. Um, so yeah, that's that's just it's the it's a kind of experiment which doesn't only take pa- place on the page. That's sort of um, talking about the t- talking talking about about fiction as if it's real or re- reality as if it's fictional. I was I was actually I had an email about this story. Uh, this this no not this story no so it's not this one. Another story um, this morning from someone who had read a story that I published uh, recently in a magazine and. In which something I can't remember which story it was. Something something bad happened in it because I just read this email very quickly this morning, and she said, "If that ha- if that really happened, I'm so sorry." And <laughs> I was just like, at first thought I'd have to go back to see which story it was, and um, then I'd have to work out whether, in what way this did happen to me, because mm-hmm. often things that are in my stories have happened to me in some way, but when I publish them as a story rather than as I guess what I'd call creative nonfiction, which is hotel and breakup, then there is there is some altering, there is some fiction always involved. Um, and even in hotel and breakup, there's a playfulness with style. Um, I think uh, Lauren Elkin, who is a friend and a writer I very much admire, wrote an essay that I commissioned from her for a book of essays called Ghost Journal, which will be out soon. And she quoted the writer, uh, the French writer Catherine Pisset, uh, saying that uh, creative nonfiction, autofiction, is stories in the key of I. Um, mm-hmm. a, 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 it's a, a, a Um so a, a story in in I. She, she interprets it as a story in the key of I. So it's something to do with the I, but it's it's not necessarily it it is it is playful around that kind of set of notes. It's not necessarily something that is absolutely. Um, it's not like a claiming truth in the same way that a biography or a memoir would be. That's so interesting, especially in terms of um, with breakup, when mm. when you're um, the eye that is there, you're sort of reading the landscape with mm. that eye, but you're also but you're reading that eye in the landscape, yeah. and um, and you're very aware of um, that character's awareness of the gaze of the other, mm-hmm. and that I think that really turns everything back on the reader, and forces especially because that text is so experimental with its form mm-hmm. um the way it little um quotations from other texts mm-hmm. appear down the outside margins yes which sort of you know force you to break away from the yeah main text and sort of force you away from the story and back onto the identity of whoever's reading it's it's really interesting the way that happens yeah I was, I was trying to construct something there i was working it out with the designer and i was trying to 
I wanted to bring in the idea that other people had thought and written about uh, the issues that I was writing about because I, I, I like to contextualise myself as a writer. I don't like to... It's, a, it's, again, it's again, it's a kind of argument with fiction. I don't want to just say, I made this all up and these are my thoughts because a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are reactions to thoughts that other writers were thinking and writing about. So I was trying to get a solution which would not interrupt the text in a traditional way. So I didn't want footnotes at the bottom where you have to kind of stop reading the text and go to the footnote at the bottom or the end of the chapter or the end of the book. And I didn't want uh, to interrupt the flow of writing to say, as Freud said, in, in his mm. work, you know, which is kind of much more like an academic essay. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to say that either. So I was, I was looking at, I was thinking about the way that we can actually read several things at once, like in a newspaper or a, you know, like a newspaper online or anything, you've got these bits that are excerpts from, from the article that aren't headlines, but they're just mm. bits that are big and they're kind of the bit, the, the sensational bits that make you want to read more or make you want to read the bottom of the, of the piece because you see, oh yeah, this is this exciting bit that I've just seen is coming up. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I am interested not only in the eye on the page, but the way the eye, like the looking eye, the reading eye, scans the page and finds out what it's going to be reading on it because I think you know reading is a really complicated process it looks quite linear it looks like we start at the top of the page and go to the bottom and we start at the left and go to the right but I think probably we're absorbing a lot of information all the time even mm -hmm. before you start reading you've probably got you've got a sense of the shape of the paragraphs you've got a sense of maybe noticing and um and and, and just taking in some of the words so you've probably got a flavor of what it's what the piece is about even before you start reading it properly mm -hmm. and then that works as well with the photographs as well oh yeah the, the photographs were a project which really did come about as i say in the book where i was traveling and i started taking photographs of the sky and they really they i was i was thinking about um going to different places traveling to different cities and especially traveling south initially through europe and thinking about how the sky changes, how it goes from sort of cloudy to to entirely cloudless um, in the south, and uh, obviously the sky doesn't have borders and it doesn't have it 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 shifts in the way that it um, it can be seen, but it doesn't have it doesn't have borders in the same way as countries uh, or even you know cities with different kinds of architecture that you only find in specific places. So I wanted to take little hints of things that uh, could be seen out of the corner of your eye when you're looking up at the sky. And also I like the idea of tourist photos that failed because I grew up in the age before digital photography, so you couldn't see the photo you'd just taken. And of course, when you got them back and you got them developed, then you'd find out, you know, when I was a child, I was always putting my finger over the, um, the mm. doing aperture or whatever, and um, I'd get back a photo instead of like a photo of where I was or a photo of a friend or something I'd get mm. like something that just had a thumb those on little it. stickers yeah. on them that yes. would tell you you feel yeah. <laughs> yes I, li I like the idea. I like I'm, I'm, I, um, I work a lot with the idea of amateurism and the idea of failing at something mm. slightly but still producing something I, I'm, I'm writing about it again at the moment um, so that that always interests me it's I guess this I'm interested in attempts mm. I, and it's really um with that text and, and also with seed which you mentioned there is this real sense of you're getting a glimpse of something which is so much bigger around it there's there's a lot of opening up in your texts you know you don't ever feel like something is prescriptive or nothing is you're never being told how to interpret something or Good. being shown the way <laughs> yeah i mean you see i had a few people who were reading it and said 
I don't know whether I read all of it. I feel like there's still more there. And they probably did read all of it because you can you can check out whether you've read every single kind of little nodule in the, um, you know, it looks like a kind of constellation or a rhizomatic structure, which is uh, with lots of little nodules that you can move between in different ways. Um, but I like the idea that I've created some sort of space. And it's very much a book about landscape. Um, it is, it's the online book, so it doesn't look like a book. Um, and I, I, I like the idea that I've created something that seems to have some kind of um, imaginative existence outside the text itself or beyond the text or within the text, but, but somehow not ending within the text. And it, it's quite um, unusual to be able to access a full text for free like that. Yeah, it was, that was purely practical. <laughs> and in fact, Visual Editions, who are the publisher who published it, um, they had tried, they, it was about their third digital project. They're a very exciting print, mm. experimental print publisher who um, work with experimental kind of placing of words on the page in different ways. So they are, they are indeed visual. Uh, but they'd, they'd tried, so trialed a couple of uh, projects which, were paid and and um, they, they found that literally the kind of checkout process was so complicated that a lot of people were just not going through with it they'd get to the checkout and they'd somehow abandon it um, and mm. uh, so so at the time at that stage of kind of technology and also that that stage of I think we're still at that stage where online contact con content is associated with free content which is a problem I think in lots of ways because you know obviously if someone's going to write something that's going to take them a lot of time, either journalism or creative work, then it's difficult to, to say, well, how do we get people to pay for that when they'd be quite happy to go down to a bookshop and buy a book? Uh, but yeah, it was it was very it was just so complicated for both those reasons that we just decided to we 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 did it through grants. They had various grants to do with their their publishing business, and I also got some money from the UK Arts Council, which was great. So we did it really in that way because there just didn't seem to be a way to make it the book that you'd go and buy in the same way as you would in a bookshop. Would you ever be tempted to recreate it as or, or try and experiment with a print version of a digital book? Well I'd like <laughs> to do that with Seed because I wrote the text you know in the same way as I write all my texts I just wrote it on my laptop and so yeah I was I would really like to see to make it a print thing and I think I'll, you know it might be a sort of quite complicated um, limited edition or something because I was thinking about you know how could I do that could I do it as an unbound thing like Anne Carson's float or B.S. Johnson's The Unfortunates where you can combine the text you could never combine the text in quite so many different ways as you could online because there are just various ways online that you can exclude some parts of the text and read one version um, which is really how the, the, the internet version works it's a bit like that book, um, A Humanment, uh, but it but it can be re it's a humanment that can be reconstructed. A humanment, so I think it's Tom Phillips, and uh, who went who got a, a Victorian novel and blacked out and coloured over and decorated various parts of the text. It's a very beautiful text, um, and so you read a completely different story from the original story because you read only the words that he's left standing. And in Seed Online. You can do that, but you can then go back and do it in a different way. So you can read one version and you can read another version and then you can kind of, you can just recombine the words in different ways. So they tell you mm. not an entirely different story, but they give you a different cast on, um, on the story. You were talking about performance and I also converted part of Seed into a performance piece for Amateur right. Voices. Really? Um, wow. Because again, you know, it's thinking about, about voices. I did it at Smokali in Dublin, in fact, um, mm. and 
thinking about that kind of I and we and you, mm-hmm. and I've got a lot of people speaking together, though it's only about one character, mm-hmm. and it's really the voice of one character, but it goes into, because you can read it, read this one character in different ways online, I was trying to kind of exploit that and thinking about um, lots of voices representing a single voice in different ways. So, I, so I, I, cut it, I cut it into sort of several parts and people mm. read together and it's, it's, it's really polyphonic. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we're talking about movement and things. Uh, a lot of your um, texts, you know, there are movements, <laughs> like whether for breakup, mm-hmm. obviously the movement of breakup, but also um, that journey that she's on mm-hmm. and even books like Hotel, which I suppose, yeah. in a, there's still movement to play, even though it's yeah. almost a respite from uh, movement. But, um, and and in Fine, the story that you, you read a little bit of, movement happens sort of in a slightly different way because we're in this one room in mm-hmm. a friend's, friend's apartment. Movement sort of happens um, through the use of another text coming in yeah. later, and which takes us out of this mm-hmm. sort of, quite restricted um, place where choice isn't really available, yeah. um, a kind of strategic game playing going on that could be claustrophobic, but then right. is, we're suddenly lifted out of that in quite a sort of um, a- alarming way, <laughs> those yeah. references yes. to war that yes. sort of cast everything <laughs> else that's, that's happened in a really different light, yeah. makes it all sort of more sinister. Um, I'm, 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 I'm very interested in, I guess, social rules. Um, I write about them a lot. Why do people stay in, literally in places where they have to behave in certain ways that they're not very happy with? Why do they stay in certain relationships? What are they getting out of it? What are they putting into it? Yeah, there's a lot of travel in my work, but nothing ever happens. There's no plot ever. So, you know, like it's, it's, it, it's, it's, I, I think... There was some meme on Twitter where people had to, I didn't do it, but people had to describe, make a list of five things that typically happen in their books. And I, I was reading a lot of people, you know, writers who I've read or who I know who um, who were writing their lists. And I just thought, nothing happens in my books. <laughs> nothing happens <laughs> in my stories. So I couldn't, I couldn't really do that. There's a lot of people sitting on sofas thinking about things. But I, I really love that part of um breakup where when I think she's leaving me where she's mm-hmm. it's all about you know beauty is in the departure oh yeah there's a lot of yeah departure in your text mm-hmm. even if you're kind of you're drawn back in and you know there's a kind of constant leaving and coming back um I thought that happens with the um with the other texts that you quote but it also happens in the characters or the narrator's experiences too um, and in in um, yeah in in fine, there are, for example, there's a conversation that happens in another room, which she's you know you're very aware of of the restrictions to her movement there, or yeah. you know there's a lot of emphasis put on those details. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of tension usually in my work about whether people rule the party or not, and sometimes mm-hmm. they do, and sometimes they don't, <laughs> <laughs> and they do it in different ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I maybe you know talking about there not being any plot. Maybe that is the plot. Will they? Will they? Will they stay or will they go? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And and uh, how almost a, a relationship can be completely 
redefined mm-hmm. in one character's yeah without anything happening or, or with, yeah. without without them even leaving it, it puts a lot of um emphasis on or puts a lot of um kind of meaning or weight onto small gestures and small mm-hmm. things happening um one of the stories i really love from vertigo is where they're sitting in the oyster oh restaurant. yeah no, they don't leave either <laughs> that's really <laughs> they keep trying to leave and they never leave <laughs> but there's just there's it really highlights just um it's quite satirical isn't it that just yeah. how we behave and mm. you know the sort of ridiculous uh, how important it is to get you know that sense of being in the queue and wanting to get somewhere mm-hmm. and then actually when they're there what's the point of looking at the sea and the smell mm-hmm. of the sea you know everything is sort of um ridiculous yes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's really yeah. it's really yeah, i think that's really, why i write about holidays a lot really because clear, I, do, I do find holidays really ridiculous and yeah you know the, the, that kind of like you go you go somewhere to do things that um that you may or may not do in a different place and it's like why why not yeah yeah <laughs> I, don't, I don't really go on holidays but which is i don't know i think my parents think i'm a bit strange yeah <laughs> they yeah. like holidays so it's you know the, it's that kind of ritual of going on holiday yeah. Whereas like, I really hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You write about being in an airport at one point and you're kind of thinking, yeah, that it's that betweenness mm-hmm. of the airport. I love travel. Yeah. yeah. I love travel. It's, also, it's quite a fruitful space for work. Often I find when I'm not in a routine, I need a certain amount of routine, everyone does, because I, I do I sometimes subject myself to periods of travel and I get really exhausted and I think, Why did I do that? I've been doing a different thing every day, I've been you know, like I've I've been travelling, I've spent all my time on buses or on trains or on on aeroplanes why am I doing it and I just but without it I get very bored yeah. um, and sometimes travel takes me up and I do I do quite fruitful work by sitting in an airport for an hour before I'm getting on a plane and mm-hmm. it's it's not because it's not I suppose it's not related to something that I know I've got to finish or that I know I've got to to do um can I just ask you one more thing yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd love to ask about um the you about your activism i suppose about yeah. um about um read women mm-hmm. um which um the new york times called a rallying cry for mm-hmm. um but you so you've been very um active and vocal in sort of challenging how women are marginalized or trying mm-hmm. to do you think things are still the same as whenever you started read women um no, I don't think so, and I think I hope Read Women's been part of that. I mean, obviously, sort of cultural attitudes you can't change overnight, and everything's very sort of bumpy. It feels being involved in this, it feels like some things are happening and then they're just not happening in other places. And I, I live in a world, I suppose, where I um, I see and I'm connected with a lot of people who are doing this sort of thing. So it feels like the whole world, but then sometimes you go into a bookshop and you see things presented in very gendered ways or um you know women being not 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 attention paid to them you, you go you basically go into a bookshop and you just see walls and walls of male writers okay some part of that's to do with history um but and, and you think well actually the, the world i think i live in i live in isn't at all the world that i live in um which is strange uh but i, I think at the moment um i did read women for four years and i stopped when i was when i'm, I'm nearly finished a phd I, I really stopped when I just didn't have enough time to go on and I was working with some other people running the account and they were so coincidentally at that time 
didn't you know didn't really have the time to go on it's still mm-hmm. there and um i've got a friend who runs a feminist bookshop in london uh, alison devers um who is interested in taking it on but again she only opened her bookshop about six months ago so she's very busy oh, is that the second, um, second job yes oh, which is a yeah. brilliant bookshop which is she's doing very exciting work um in the rare books community which is very male dominated and so literally when books by women tend to be accorded literally lower values um which i think um interesting and so she's 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 trying to to get a place on the shelf really for uh, books by women um but yeah at the moment i think i'm i can't i can't stop doing something which is is you know I'm, I, I find myself doing quite a lot of stuff at the moment to do with um age restrictions on arts opportunities on, on literary opportunities where you're told you read the you read the instructions you're told you can't apply if you're over the age of 30 or over the age of 40 and which does seem to be also directly a kind of a feminist project because so many women are slowed particularly by childcare but by other issues of course it's not just women um who are slowed and anyone who's who's encountered any kind of um anything that that is going to slow them down uh and and just uh, you know, some people just start writing later. Why should they be excluded from these opportunities? It just seems crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I do see it as particularly as as also a feminist project, trying to get uh, organisations to redefine their criteria. If they're looking for new writing, you know, say new writing, don't don't exclude people who are over forty five because mm-hmm. you know some of them may have only just had the time or the money or the education or the the good health to get around to writing at the age of you know say fifty or or 60 yeah mm-hmm. um so it just it, it seems like a very lazy kind of way of uh defining new writing just by saying and whereas you know of course some writers in their 30s or their 20s have published many books and are very well established um and you i noticed that you contributed to the reading the canon yes uh, anthology, yeah, which i think is a brilliant anthology i love isabel wavener's work yeah. i love you know i love what she's doing both in terms in kind of I guess you'd call it curatorial terms. Mm-hmm. She also does a night at the ICA that I've read for called Queers Read This, which is brilliant. And um, yeah, she, she's she's both in her writing and in everything that she's doing. Mm-hmm. She's just you know, bringing in new new voices and new styles and uh, new perspectives, really. Excellent. And challenging the canons always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Liberating it. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> The Noella Bice podcast is produced in a small back room in the Seamus Heaney Centre. Still Worlds Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noella Bice Press. With thanks to Ruby Colley for her music. <laughs>